welcome to the Vicor Powering Innovation Podcast, where we discuss world-changing innovations. I'm Steve Germino, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe Ducey. Our guest today is Jamie Hoffacker, VP of Hardware at Kodiak Robotics. Kodiak is the leading autonomous long-haul trucking company in the world today. But if I were to make a theme for this show, it really would be fact or fiction. Joe, it seems like science fiction today, but Kodiak is really doing it. They have designed a self-driving long-haul truck. And I guess my disbelief really comes in the fact that I never envisioned a long-haul truck to be the first vehicle that would hit the roads. This kind of caught me by surprise as well. But after doing a little bit of fact-finding, it became pretty clear that long-haul trucking was an obvious choice for automation. So buckle up because I'm about to drop some stats on you as I normally do. <laughs> so, the, so this one here, the first bullet is trucks move roughly 72% of the U.S. freight annually. You know, that represents about 11 billion tons of freight. That's a lot of materials. And they travel about 302 billion miles, and that would be the registered trucks. And it's also estimated that 60,000 shortfall of truckers in the U.S. and an additional 25,000 in Canada. And to finish it off, and not to be too morbid, there's 4,800 accidents that resulted in fatalities and 107,000 accidents resulting in injuries from large trucks. You know, and the interesting thing is three of the five key contributors to accidents, which are braking, distance, driver fatigue, and blind spots, could actually be avoided by implementing autonomous trucking. Those are some terrific stats, Joe. I wouldn't have expected anything less from you. My big takeaway from what Kodiak does is they're really creating safer conditions for truckers. I know that's one of the biggest benefits of what they're set out to do. For Kodiak, it's not just about the bottom line. They're improving the quality of life for these truckers and creating a more sustainable model for years to come. You know, your stats kind of bear that out. In fact, today, Kodiak has 30 trucks on the road that have traveled over a million test miles. I mean, this is real. They're really doing this in a successful fashion. I'm getting closer to believing. The idea still scares me a bit, but I cannot imagine seeing an unmanned vehicle of that size next to me on the highway. I'm a boomer, so I'm still holding on to the good old days. So if I saw a, a truck with no driver, I think I would keep a very safe distance just in case. But, you know, however, now knowing what extraordinary steps Kodiak goes through to test these systems, I feel a lot safer. You know, these autonomous systems use an array of advanced sensors that no human driver can match, including, you know, thermal and infrared sensors, inertial measurement units, or as they call them, IMUs, cameras, and Kodiak has its own called Kodiak Vision, and so on. But we all know anything can happen on the road, so that's why Kodiak has done extensive road trials to simulate real-world conditions, including controlled tire blowout tests. They even have a safety driver in the cab in the event the system malfunctions, which fortunately it hasn't to date. You know, when dealing with road safety and lives, it's best to employ a belt and suspenders mentality. Yeah, and from all that, you can see that Kodiak is not taking this lightly. Safety is their first priority, and with all the testing they've done, they really have achieved all of that, it seems like. I mean, the fact that they've logged a million miles, they're clearly committed to making this thing work. Their due diligence is obvious. So let's listen into the conversation with Robert and Jamie and uh, see what else we learn. Hi, this is Robert from Vicor. Today, we are talking to the company called Kodiak, and we're joined with Jamie Hoffacker, 
who's the VP of hardware there. Jamie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Robert. Really great to be here. And uh, I love it when we have a chance to sort of share our story outside of the autonomous world with a broader audience. I think I'm really excited to talk to you about what we're doing today. Yes, no, thank you. So, Jamie, let's jump right into it. I mean, who, you know, who is Kodiak? Yeah, so Kodiak's a five-year-old company. We're about 180 people. We were founded by Don Burnett. What our product is, is we do a long-haul hub-to-hub autonomous trucking system. So we build that in-house. We build the entire software and hardware stack. We do not build the truck. We buy the truck from a company called Kenworth, and that's the base vehicle. It's a diesel class eight truck that can carry 80,000 pounds. And Kodiak operates hub to hub. What that means is we have a freeway adjacent transport hub where we will pick up a trailer that has been dropped there from a manual truck. We'll pick it up autonomously. We'll drive it on the freeway, any controlled access road essentially. We typically operate out of Dallas right now. And we'll drive on the freeway from anywhere from four to 16 hours is our longest route right now. And we will drive that autonomously and then pull off of the freeway and drop it at a hub in a new city like Atlanta. So Dallas to Atlanta is one of our big routes. Today we operate 30 vehicles. Each day those vehicles go out and do paid deliveries autonomously. And we have done 2,500 paid deliveries at this point and over a million miles. Wow. What is the origins of Kodiak? How did you start? Yeah, great question. So Don Burnett was a researcher at Carnegie Mellon, and this is back in early days before there was such thing as self-driving vehicles, maybe beyond science fiction. And he was sort of swept up when Google was beginning what they were calling the Google Self-Driving Car Project, which later became Waymo. And he was pulled into that project, one of the early employees. He worked there for a number of years. And when he was working on the robo-taxi problem, that's what Waymo works on generally, he came to realize that maybe he believed the first application of autonomous technology would actually be in trucking. Robotaxi operating in cities and suburbs is a really hard problem. The ODD, or operational design domain, that you have to operate in, you know, a lot of pedestrians, a lot of police activity, or you have different things going on. You have Halloween, for example, or schools getting out. He believed that trucking on controlled access roads really was the application that autonomous technology would be productized with. And he went off and founded a company called Auto, and Auto was later acquired by Uber, while Uber got into self-driving tech and trucking. And then Uber decided to get out of that area. When they got out, he left, this is five years ago, he left Uber and founded Kodiak. And Kodiak's mission, essentially, is to make the world's safest truck driver. And what that means is we believe we can operate with our sensors, with our compute stack, we can operate a truck as safe, if not safer, than today's commercial drivers, licensed truck drivers. And we can also operate that on long haul routes for very long distances, very safely. Today, a driver typically can go up to 10 hours of driving in a day, and our systems can drive 20 hours in a day, and we don't have to stop and the system doesn't have to sleep, for example. I saw on your website, you showed how one example of safety about tire blowouts. And you had a data point on there, you said 15% of all truck crashes are related just to that alone which again, you have video actually showing how you can overcome or how you can control a tire blowout. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, there are lots of things that happen today that we have to handle as an autonomous system and how that's handled from a traditional driver is different when you have an autonomous system. So with a tire blowout, for example, we have in our system an IMU, which is an inertial measurement unit 
that operates at some high frequency at sort of hundreds of hertz. And it can detect that, like, if a tire blows out, we get a you know, large jolt. We also have, there's some audio associated with it. And then you have some steering input as, you know, if it's a steer tire, for example, you have some steering input that you can detect. And because our system operates at this high frequency, we showed that when this happens on a test track at speed, I believe this test was about, the one you're referring to on our website, was about 35, 40 miles an hour. When this happens, we can detect it, and we can react to it with our control system very accurately and repeatedly. And what that meant in that test that we showed on our website is the cross-track error. That's the error, if you're kind of in the center of a lane, you can measure as you're sort of swerving in the lane, you could measure the cross-track error in sort of centimeters. You know, are you somebody who's swerving a lot might have a cross-track error of 50 centimeters? Well, we maintained sub-10 centimeter cross-track error through that blowout of our left steer tire. And that's something we consistently can do. And that's to show that this autonomous vehicle doesn't just drive in nominal conditions, but can also handle emergency conditions like a tire blowout. Yeah, very interesting. So, Jimmy, you mentioned the system a little bit there. So on the hardware side, can you explain a little bit more what else is encompassed, what other hardware you have you know, for the autonomous driving? Yeah, so the autonomous system is, I mentioned the IMU already. We have other sensors as well. So for perception or perceiving the world around you, you know, humans use ears and their eyes, for example, to perceive the world around them. In our system, we use camera, radar, and LIDAR, LIDAR being a laser pulse that is sent out and returned, and you get a depth map, a high-density depth map. We also have, which I mentioned at IMU, we use GPS, although our system does not rely on GPS because it's not as reliable a service. We use GPS to help sort of locate where we are on the road. Those are the main sensors in our perception system. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a compute. This compute does the thinking, is the brain of our system, and it takes all the data from those sensors and turns it into kind of a picture of the world around us. It looks at like a static picture. We also dynamically predict where objects will be based on where they were and the type of object. We know a vehicle moves differently than a pedestrian, for example, or somebody kneeling by there changing a tire by the side of the road moves differently than somebody standing up, for example. Mm -hmm. And then from that perception and prediction, we then move to motion planning where we say, okay, where do we want to be based on, you know, the scene around us? And we do that 10 times every second. So every 10 times every second, every 100 milliseconds, we look at every sensor and we evaluate the situation, and we say, okay, where does our truck need to go now for the next period of time? And we update that every 100 milliseconds. And that's basically our system. There's one more piece that's super important, and that's the um, actuation system. This is our safe actuation system. This is the thing that tells the truck to brake, to steer left, to steer right, to apply throttle. And that system we call our ACE, and that system's fully redundant. It uses high reliability processors. And it's very important that that system be safe. It's very important that if we tell the system to go left, it goes left. Or if we don't tell it to do something, that it doesn't do it. So that's a big part of our safety case is, you know, to properly actuate the vehicle based on the decisions that our perception, planning, prediction stack are making. Mm-hmm. And Jamie, is there a, even though it's self-driving the vehicle, but is there still a driver in the truck? Or how does that work, I guess, with the human driver? Yeah, absolutely. So today... We operate, as we said, 30 vehicles around the southern U.S. Today, we still have a safety driver in the driver's seat. This is a licensed driver, and they essentially cover pieces of the system that we do not yet have. 
um, covered. So occasionally something will happen to our system or happen with our system that we don't know or that we don't cover, and that safety driver is there in case to take over. And they are you know, holding their hands near the wheel. They're not touching the wheel. They're sort of covering the pedals. And then if they feel uncomfortable, we encourage them to take the system over. And then we re-simulate every time we have a disengagement, we're capturing all this data in our logs. We then go re-simulate and say, okay, would the system have handled that properly? Or did the safety driver need to take over? And if they need to take over, this is, of course, increasingly rare. But if they needed to take over because we would have done the wrong thing, then we spend a lot of time working on those. That's really valuable information. We spend a lot of time understanding why we had that issue with our system, and we work on that. And that's essentially what we're doing now, is working to remove that safety driver so we can operate the system on the road fully driverless in the next couple of years. Sure. Okay, so this is truly just the interim step then, to have people still in the vehicle itself. That's right. We expect that to be the norm for at least a few more years. We're looking at kind of the 2024-2025 launch of our system that is driver out. But today, we absolutely need and want that safety driver in there to help us design and build our system and help validate it. And then we encourage them to take over. A lot of times when they take over, they didn't need to, but we don't want to, of course, take that chance. We want them to, whenever they're uncomfortable, they're professional drivers. Whenever they're uncomfortable, we want them to take that system over. And I'll add one more thing, which is regularly we will go from Dallas to Houston, for example, without that driver having to take over the wheel. That's a four-hour drive. I think one day, uh, this is actually about two years ago, we went Dallas to Houston to Dallas to Houston four times with one of our vehicles without the safety driver having to do anything to disengage the system. So just trying to give you an idea of our progress, but then, of course, that doesn't happen every time. And so, you know, we can't release a product until we know 100% that it will be meeting or exceeding the safety standards of today's CDL drivers. Right. Now, Jamie, this is usually the point of the conversation I ask someone like yourself about technical hurdles in your designs and such, but how are you allowed to drive on public roads? What happens there? Do you work with the state, or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want to get myself in trouble here. <laughs> That's a question sometimes I would defer to our legal and policy team, but we absolutely work with different states. In certain states, we can operate today driver out on public roads. If we believe we are ready, we could self-certify that. In general, we work with the state legislatures. We also work very closely with the police commissions and regulatory bodies within that state and federal bodies. This is not something that we, you know, we're at all cowboying. This is something that we want to deploy in a very safe and controlled manner. We believe that, you know, this technology really has the opportunity to change trucking for some great ways. The long-haul approach is something that also can be interstate, and so we have to work with the federal motor safety agencies. And so today, in some states, you need to have that safety driver, and in some states, you do not. And so I won't venture to guess which is which, but generally, we have a pretty good path from Dallas to Atlanta to operate today when we believe we're ready. And then, like I said, <laughs> but more of a normal question I usually ask is, again, what's the greatest like technical hurdle in deploying a system like this? Yeah, I think that I'll take this from a hardware standpoint because I think, you know, that's my background. And of course, I know there's lots of software hurdles as well that we work on. But from a hardware standpoint, where we currently have our fourth generation truck deployed. And so that sort of gives you some hint that generations one, two, and three, you know, all we learned from that and we adapted. And generation four will be the same thing, of course. We'll look to future generations as well. And I think maybe I can just talk a little bit about some of the things we learned over those sort of first generations of vehicles. And one of the interesting things that I learned is how 
incredibly harsh the trucking environment is. We operate some of these vehicles six days a week, 20 hours a day. And the pieces that you say, oh, that's automotive certified. That's great because a car is used, I think, maybe an hour a day over 12 years and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a very different use case. Cars also have much better suspensions generally. So the beating that the sensors that our compute takes in a truck is just different. And we've had to actually adjust how we build our system to be more robust over these generations of truck. And then I think one other thing I would say, and happy to answer any follow-ups on that question, but one other thing I would say is this is kind of interesting for any hardware device, and I think maybe other people have run into this. It takes us maybe 12 to 18 months to develop a new generation of truck, whereas the software team is iterating like on a kind of a two-week cycle. We have a daily release. We're constantly adding features. And uh, one of the things we've really had to work on, and we've done a good job of here at Kodiak, is anticipating the needs of that software stack ahead of time. If we build the stack, our hardware stack, to the technology that the software team needs today, by the time we deploy the next generation vehicle in 12 months, you know, they've already flown way by. And so we have to partner with them and say, okay, what do you anticipate that you need? What are the pieces that you don't have today? And then what will materially affect like on the road today? Here's a set of disengagements we had. Here's maybe 15 scenarios that we couldn't handle. How are we actually working on those scenarios with the hardware platform? We don't want to be reactive. We have to be pretty proactive. And that's something that we've done really well at Kodiak. But I'd say in the first and second generation, when I first got here, we had to learn and kind of overcome that and really understand how to work really closely together to get that product out. It's just the timelines are just so different. And I don't think this is unique to probably products at Vicor either. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Very interesting, though. I didn't realize that the fact that with your fleet service, yeah, you need parts that run at a much higher reliability than what you would typically find. That's something I don't think most of us would have thought about. Yeah, I think it's interesting that automotive grade can mean different mm-hmm. things. And just when you run this many miles, when you're running 20 hours a day, we have pilots. I won't try and venture the company's names because I always forget which ones are public and which ones aren't. But when we have pilots with some of the big shipping carrier companies, and I think actually IKEA is public, I can say that one. We run pilots with these companies, and some of these pilots are six days a week, and they run long haul six days a week, Dallas to Atlanta, mm-hmm. for example. That's a lot of hours. That's a 16-hour delivery cycle. And those you just, you just take a beating. And, and the sensors we have, the sensors and compute we have in our vehicle today are not what we started with. It's funny, someone hands you a spec sheet, and you look at a spec sheet and, oh, that looks great. But the only way to really understand if that's going to work for you is to evaluate it, is to strap it on a truck and to go drive it, you know, 10,000 miles. We find all sorts of issues on the road that you just can't find in a lab or in a quick evaluation. We find it by putting it on our vehicles. Of course, we do this in a safe manner. That's the best way. You know, you talk about shake and vibe to sort of mm-hmm. validate a system. There's no better shake and vibe table than a Class 8 truck going down the freeways of Texas. I believe the potholes are positioned strategically to uh, maximize the (laughs) impact. We've done a lot of testing, and we've broken a lot of pieces early on. We feel really good about where we are today, though. And obviously, your retrofitting of a vehicle still has to make it operational by a human driver, right? So I assume that creates some challenges also. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the sort of core safety tenets is that the human driver can always take over the vehicle. And we need to have that with incredibly high integrity. And so we have a lot of disengagement surfaces. And then at the very end, of course, we have a big red button. And that button, if the driver pushes it, very safely disconnects our system 
from the vehicle and returns it to a manual system. That's something that we've done a lot of testing on, a lot of evaluation. And so, yes, it's a, when you think about the autonomous service, we're developing an autonomous service, but we have to develop that safely. And to develop that safely, you need to consider that, yes, you need to have a human safety driver in there today, and you need to be able to manually drive the truck. And this isn't just for our development. Even the uh, fleets that are really interested in autonomous technology, they still want to manually drive these trucks. They, They may say, hey, this route, Dallas to Houston or Dallas to Oklahoma City, that's great. I'm running it autonomously, but hey, I need to pull this truck off and go run it, go do some short haul routes to go help out a backlog here. They still want to be able to run these things in manual as well. That's at least in the initial phases. And so we do keep like HMI considerations. We have our own HMI system, our own audio cues, our own audio warnings that we build in for the human driver that wouldn't necessarily have to be there if there was no driver in the vehicle in the future. I think you mentioned earlier, but all the inferencing or decision-making for the driving, that's contained within the vehicle. Is that correct? That is. That's right. And that's a really important point you just brought up. To build a safety case, we do have telematics to our Kodiak Operations Center that's in Dallas. So telematics meaning we can sort of see where our vehicles are. We actually have the ability to assist a vehicle. Like you could, you could say, hey, the vehicle is pulled over. It's not sure what to do because there's a cardboard box. I'm making this piece up, but there's a cardboard box in front of it, and the operations center could assist and say, hey, this cardboard box is uh, not, a, not a menace. You can actually slowly go over it, and you can you know, help the vehicle out. So the operations center does help us with the vehicles, but they never make like time-critical, safety-critical decisions, and that's really important. The, everything is self-contained within that vehicle, and really the reasoning there is you just don't have the ability to have that like that high integrity link to the vehicle, no wireless link, no data link today really meets that goal of being super high integrity. And so we have to be able to operate if the telematics goes down, whether that means we continue to operate for 10 minutes or 10 hours, or we pull the vehicle over and wait for that network to come back up. But you're absolutely right. The the system is fully self-contained within the truck and all communication with that truck is non-time and safety critical. So, Jimmy, I've got to ask, of course, being from a power company, I mean, how do you how do you power this system in the vehicle? Yeah, sure. I thought maybe you'd ask me something about the power, <laughs> um, Robert. So traditionally, of course, our trucks today are diesel trucks. And so we have a alternator, which creates the power for our system. It's a little bit different in that we do modify that a bit to pull out 48 volts in our current system. And we basically take that 48 volts and we bring that into our Vicor system, our Vicor modules, and we turn that into the 12, 24, and 48 that we need for our electronics. So one thing about power that's a little bit different for an autonomous vehicle is it's actually part of the safety critical system. And if we don't have robust, clean power for our electronics, and I say clean, I mean, it can be automotive grade power, but it, you know it can't be jumping all around or spiking or reversing polarity, things like that. If we don't have robust and clean power for our electronics, then that wouldn't meet the safety case. We don't have a manual driver in there to sort of take over and manually steer if we lose hydraulics and such. And so we need a company that we can rely on that makes automotive-grade supplies and has a great reputation for delivering high reliability components. And that's why we've chosen Vicor. One more thing I'll add... I'll just say I've worked with Vicor for many years now and other companies as well, kind of an aside here, but I love buying a module that has all of the passives 
integrated into that module. I can't tell you how many times I'd say in 2000, maybe 2007, where I'm chasing down Murata inductors from Japan with 18-month lead times. That's not a fun thing to do if you're trying to build a product. I will say having a fully integrated AC to DC module, that's actually a godsend for our um, procurement team, our supply chain team. So a little aside there that I do love that the module is fully integrated. And then you also deal with the provenance of all those parts to make sure they're genuine and reliable. So kind of an aside there. But absolutely, power is really important. It usually means redundant power. So in our system, we have different batteries at 48 volts and at 12 volts. We put them on different sides of the vehicle, just in case there's an incident on one side of the vehicle. And then we can provide sort of redundant power to our key systems. I mentioned the ACE before, and that ACE system takes both powers in. So if we lose one power, then it it kind of oars them together. If we lose one power, then we're still powered. The ACE can still function and actuate the vehicle. And then we have two ACEs in case that has an issue as well. So it's all about building up that safety case and that safety story and using Vicor Power, high reliability power modules from a reputable and a top-notch company. That's really important to us. What's next for Kodiak? You know, what do you hope to achieve next with what you're doing? Yeah, today we have the 30 vehicles on the road and we're operating our current generation. What we're looking at for the next two years is building out our safety case. And what that means is it's sort of an expression that in the safety case, that we understand the hazards in our ODD, that operational domain that we work in. Uh We understand those hazards, and we can handle those hazards safely, either by we can fail operational, I continue to drive if there's a failure or a a situation, we can fail safe and perform some minimal risk maneuver. So we're building that safety case, and only until that case is done and we can sort of prove that we meet and exceed that CDL sort of safety bar can we launch our product? So that's really what the next two years look like at Kodiak for our Class 8 trucking you know, long-haul product. I would also add, I think since you mentioned what's next, we're really excited. We just signed a contract with the DOD. It's a $50 million two-year contract to bring Kodiak's autonomous driver to kind of off-road military reconnaissance applications. This is something that the military has been working on for a couple decades and we're really excited to be able to help out. And basically in our program, this is the first time they've split the hardware and the software. And base vehicle is delivered by one company and then the autonomy system is being delivered by Kodiak. And that's something that we're really excited about. Right now it's a two-year contract and we feel like that's a really great area for us to be able to, to work and to help out. And we believe our system, the way we've built it, is really well suited for not just highway applications, but also off-road applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would assume off-road even has greater challenges as far as the product reliability or robustness and also your decision-making because you're no longer really on a road per se, but a dirt road or uncharted road, et cetera. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I came to Kodiak and I was really excited about this company when I joined you know, three and a half years ago is the experience of the team. My boss, Andy, was the perception lead at Waymo. And of course, Don is kind of an early pioneer in the self-driving space. And the way they approached building a system, there's lots of ways to approach building a self-driving vehicle. In a robo-taxi, you know, autonomous taxis, you think about something called high-definition maps. You map every inch of every street, basically, with these laser, high-definition LIDAR sensors, laser sensors, cameras. You really understand, okay, that's a fire hydrant I'm coming up to. It's not a small child who kind of looks like a fire hydrant. Those are kind of um, heuristics that will help you. Kodiak really focused on building our system out 
with a much more extensible thought process in mind. So we didn't rely on HD maps. They're very expensive to make. Many companies have mapping teams of hundreds of people to maintain HD maps of different cities. Anytime a mailbox moves, you want to then remap that. We do something called sparse maps, where really we just need to understand where are the lane lines, where are the on-ramps, where are the off-ramps. We need to know where we are in those. We need to localize ourselves within that sparse map. It's called perception over prior, where we drive on what we see, not on what we've the map tells us. So the map is absolutely useful for telling us, hey, you're in this lane, your exit's coming up. But you know, overnight, someone may have restriped. Not that someone may have, someone does. This, this actually happens all the time. Someone may have restriped the freeway. And the last thing you want to do then is rely on your map and just you know, blow through a bunch of lanes. So it's really important that we drive on what we see. This idea of sparse maps, of using sort of smaller maps with less data in them, forces our system to sort of drive more like a human would. You know, humans don't say, oh, look, I'm localizing myself to three feet ahead of where I am. That's just not how humans work. They drive on what they see in front of them. And that allows us to sort of extend this system to off-road applications. Like the military may not have, certainly doesn't have HD maps in theater. But you're on a dirt road, so these are off-road use cases without lane lines. We've already proven we can operate in those scenarios with very little adjustment to our system. We just map going both directions, or we actually take a satellite image and create a map from that. And then we can drive, and our system is quite effective in those scenarios. So that's something that we're demonstrating now with the DOD, and it's something we're really excited to you know, showcase as we deploy our technology. Oh, well, thank you. And we've been talking with Jamie Hoffacker, the VP of Hardware, Kodiak. And Jamie, you know, thank you for sharing your comments on Kodiak and your insights. Thank you so much. This has been very interesting. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Well, after listening, I really have a renewed appreciation for a man and his truck. More specifically, a new level of respect for the life of a trucker and his long haul life. Jamie really bears out the harsh conditions and the wear and tear on trucks. I mean, I can't imagine six days a week and up to 20 hours a day. It just sounds exhausting in so many different ways. Now, with this autonomous technology, which is mission critical, that underpins all these vehicles, that too has to perform the same number of hours, but flawlessly. You know, if this technology takes a break, we have a catastrophe on the roadways. Yeah, what strikes me here is that Kodiak has taken a plan for the worst and hope for the best design approach. You know, they've taken a very practical and real approach to system design that few companies actually do. They recognize that performance and reliability aren't determined in the lab, but rather on the open road. Having numerous built-in redundancies ensures the safe development and testing of the platform in real-world conditions. You know, I actually applaud the fact that they maintain a central monitoring station that is capable of assessing situations real-time and can actually intervene if necessary. To maintain this level of control and confidence, you need reliable components capable of withstanding the rigors of the road. I think that's why Kodiak trusts Vicor to deliver the innovative and reliable power solutions they have. Yeah, again, these guys really have done their due diligence and really are trying to put safety squarely in the middle of everything they're doing. But for me, the other big takeaway is the fact that Kodiak Autonomous Driver is soon going off-road. Did you catch that part about them getting into military reconnaissance applications? That tells me they've got to be pretty comfortable with the level of sensor sophistication and accuracy. Yeah, I mean, nothing says mission critical like military reconnaissance. You can't get more frontline than that. 
Success on the battlefield really hinges on the accuracy of your recon intelligence. So it tells me that the DoD has a lot of confidence in Kodiak and the autonomous systems they design. The system requirements that come to mind for reconnaissance are stealth, adaptability, reliability, accuracy, and survivability. This is a very different application than on-road trucking, but it really illustrates how versatile Kodiak systems can be. Yeah, it absolutely does. That said, I'm still not ready to see these autonomous trucks passing me on the highway. So uh, at least for now, I do have a little more confidence in them getting to their destination safely and, and me as well. So, you know, that was just another great episode. And I really appreciate Robert and Jamie unpacking all the info for us. So my friends, that concludes another episode of the Powering Innovation Podcast. Thanks for listening. So until next time, I'm Steve Germino with my co-host, Joe Ducey. Thanks for tuning in to the Vicor Powering Innovation Podcast. Mm-hmm.